0: Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode, Anne Applebaum talks about Red Famine, Stalin's war on Ukraine, with moderator Conor O'Cleary, recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 6th of October 2018. Our knowledge of history is fundamental to our present and our future. And as somebody said recently, a nation without history is like a tree without roots. So... It's my pleasure and privilege to speak to Anne Applebaum uh, today. Uh, She's the author of several books. Gulag, A History, which won the 2004 Pulitzer Prize. Um, These are ones that I've read. Uh, The Iron Curtain in 2013, Between East and West in 1915. And now she's here today to speak about her book, Red Famine. Uh, I must say, I almost ran up the stairs in Hodges figures to buy this book when it came out and I read it from cover to cover before I knew I was going to be here speaking to Anne this this evening. It's a terrific book. It uh, uh, recounts how 4 million people died of starvation in Ukraine in the early 1930s, and uh, and it's uh, based on a mass of new material from the archives. Um, Before discussing uh, your book, Anne, I could ask you to tell people something a little bit about yourself where you come from, how you became interested in this subject.
1: So so first of all, thank you very much. I'm really delighted to be in Dublin. I'm particularly delighted to be talking to um, one of Ireland's great journalists. Um, I Actually, I've told you this already, but I reviewed your book um, when it came out, your book about the last day of the Soviet Union. And before I came here today, I quickly looked up the review to see if it was good, and it was. So (laughs) (laughs) I feel relieved about that. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, people sometimes ask me where I'm from, and sometimes I find it hard to answer the question. I am, of course, American. I'm born in Washington, D.C., and I, you know, don't have any doubt about that. Um, but most of the last 30 years, I've lived either in Britain or in Poland. Um, I'm, my husband is Polish, my children are bilingual, and I kind of go back and forth. Um, I used to have on one of my columns at the bottom of the column i'm a, i'm, a, I'm a, also a newspaper columnist um there used to be a, a phrase something ann applebaum is based in london and warsaw and somebody once wrote a letter to the washington post saying is ann applebaum a nuclear submarine you know <laughs> <laughs> back and forth from the, between them. Um, but i i i think of myself as a um as a citizen of you know citizen of the transatlantic alliance something like that but um, i have been writing about Russia and Eastern Europe for many years. I, I studied Russian when I was at university. Um, this was in the 1980s when we were st- there was still a Cold War and it was very intriguing to know what was on the other side of the Iron Curtain. And I was a student in Leningrad, actually, um, for a few months when, in, it was when it was still Leningrad and it was still the Soviet Union. And I recently worked out that I must have been one of the last generations of students who were there when it was the Soviet Union. I mean, I think this is 1985. So if you'd come a year or two later, it was already Perestroika and Gorbachev and so on. It was much different. Um, But I had this very last momentary glimpse of what the Soviet Union was like. Um, And I suppose ever since then, I've been trying to explain it.
0: I've been trying to explain to Anne my interest in in Russia. And it all began with the Brim's fairy tales, which I read when I was young. And it uh, sparked me an interest in central europe. part of central europe yeah. um and here in ireland we know all about famines um the uh, 19 1845 to 1849 there was a famine in ireland which resulted in death by starvation of uh, one million people and possibly turning two and a half million people into refugees so uh, would you be able to compare the, the famine in ireland with the famine in ukraine and from what you know of the famine Yeah, so'm
1: I'm, I'm not as you, as I'm, I'm not a great expert on the famine in Ireland, um, and and I'm hoping you'll you know you'll correct me or, or fill in what I what I get wrong. Um, I mean f- the, there are some things they have in common. Um, I think you know the position and actually I've often used in the past, I've compared the relationship of Ukraine to Russia um, f- several times to the relationship of Ireland to Britain. Um, in that there it is a colonial relationship there was a, a Ukrainians were part of the Russian Empire um, both in the czarist era and in the Soviet period and the Russians have a little bit of the attitude towards Ukraine that I think the British used to have to Ireland and not anymore now Ireland is a sovereign independent country and so on but if you look back in the early 20th century late 19th century it was a feeling you know, is it really a real country you know, is it, do they deserve, you know, should they, be, isn't it sort of a joke to imagine that this is a real country? Why, how, they wouldn't be able to govern themselves. And a little bit of that kind of post-colonial snobbery is a little bit the way the Russians talk about the Ukrainians. You know, they're, they're like us, they speak a language like ours, but it's somehow, it's a peasant culture, it's not a real culture. And it, you know, it took, a, it looked a long time for Ireland to be, um, establish itself. Um, and I think Ukraine will take some time to establish itself in Russia as a as a separate entity, too. But the I think the main difference in the famines is uh, the Ukrainian famine was an organized famine. In other words, there was not a potato blight. There was not a crop shortage. There was not a there was not a you know, it wasn't because of rainfall or drought that, that the, I mean, there's some arguments about whether the weather was better or worse than in, in 1932 and 33, which is the year of the worst. Um, of the worst crisis, but it was not a but by no by no measure could it have been um, Should it have been catastrophic? I mean in next door Poland did not have a famine It's exactly the same climate in the same in the same terrain um, and the Ukrainian famine was essentially caused by groups of activists and we can talk about this a little bit more later going from house to house and confiscating food and this is, a, this is not just that people didn't have access to food, their food was taken from them. Um, and this is a, it, you know, and to explain how it happened, you therefore need to explain how, why they were doing that. Whereas the Irish famine, um, had a, it had an agricultural element, you know, the, the, there was the potato blight. You can argue that the, I mean, there's a, the fact that the British were still exporting food from Ireland um, at the time when there was a famine, you know, it shows a similar disregard for the humanity of the Irish. And you have a similar phenomenon in the Soviet Union. They were still, they were still exporting food during the Ukrainian famine as well.
0: An interesting question is the knowledge of the famine. Uh, the, since the famine occurred in Ireland, it's been part of the historical narrative uh, mm-hmm. here in this country. Uh, in U- Ukraine, uh, people didn't really know all that much about the famine uh, in the last couple of decades of the Soviet Union. How has it played into the historical narrative in Ukraine?
1: So it's very interesting because, as you say, the, I mean, the, what happened after the Ukrainian famine took place, all discussion of it was suppressed, even to the extent of statistics being manipulated to hide the fact that it had ever happened. Um, this is a, also described in my book. Um, so it was not discussed, it was a taboo subject, even well into the, even after Stalin died into the 1960s and 1970s, it was not a, you couldn't discuss it publicly. However, in Ukraine, it existed as a kind of alternate narrative. You know, people had private family memories of it. They had private records of it, people had diaries, and it was a kind of almost like an alternate history passed down to me. And, and the, one of the things that happened in Ukraine is that after the war, when quite a number of Ukrainians for, um, ended up outside the borders of the Soviet Union. They, some of them retreated with the, with the German army. Some of them had been sent abroad as, uh, you know, because part of Ukraine was occupied by the Nazis. Um, the, the Ukrainians who wound up outside the country in the 1940s and 50s began commemorating the famine, and had, there was a yearly event where they would commemorate the famine. So it became something that the diaspora and kind of the dissidents and people in their private lives spoke about and talked about. And for this reason, it's always had a kind of extra power in Ukraine. Um, and it's really not an accident that in the late 1980s, when the description, you know, when you, the possibility of an independent Ukraine emerged again, this was the moment when discussion of the famine also became public. And it's actually maybe interesting to know that the, the exact moment when the, the, the famine became public discussion again was right after the Chernobyl disaster. Because because this was a you know it was another disaster caused by neglect and um, and it and, you know and it, and the uh, there was a famous Ukrainian poet who spoke and he said look you know th- we've had one disaster that, that killed so many millions of us and now here's another disaster we need to talk we, we need to have a different conversation about how our country is run.
0: At occasion recently, um, research for a book I've just written, uh, to read Khrushchev's secret pe- secret speech in 1956. Uh, and I went back to look at that when I knew I was going to be talking to you because there was something stuck in my mind. And it was Khrushchev in that secret speech uh, criticized Stalin. This is when Stalin. he just criticizes yes. Stalin, denounced Stalin. Uh, he, he criticized the repression of the Chechens and the English who had been deported um, uh, for allegedly collaborating with the Germans during the Second World War. But he also said uh, Ukrainians would have met the same fate, only there were too many of them. And I don't know uh, whether uh, that was in jest or not. Yes. But he, uh, the question that uh, arises in my mind is, uh, how did the famine affect uh, or, or how, how the role of the Ukrainians in the Second World War? I mean, how did it affect their perception of events as the Second World War unfolded?
1: Well, um, uh, certainly there were, there were some Ukrainians, um, maybe even many Ukrainians, who when the Germans entered their country... Um, welcomed them I mean they thought you know they expected to be rescued um, by the Germans and they and and the Germans actually very successfully this is also described in my book the Germans very successfully I mean you know I, you know I, I said that the famine had been repressed the one time you know in the in the Soviet period when the famine was publicly discussed was during the German occupation of Ukraine the Germans talked about it and put up posters about it and said, you know, now you're in the part of the Great Reich, you know, you won't have famine again. Um, The irony, of course, is that the Germans almost immediately turned on the Ukrainians. Um, They had no intention of giving them any kind of autonomy or sovereignty. Um, And the, the Germans also initiated a new policy of starvation. So they had, what their idea was that they would take the food that was grown in Ukraine and they would export it to Germany. And Hitler had a very clear policy. So in a way, you have both Hitler and Stalin um, seeing Ukraine as a, as a bread basket, a place to get food out of, but not being interested in the in the survival of people. And how does the
0: famine fit into the overall history of the Soviet Union? I mean, obviously, it has its roots in the revolution of uh, 1917, uh, but it the question that arises in my mind is why did Stalin do it? If this was a deliberate um, famine not just because of the failure of a crop but because of decisions made in the Kremlin,
1: why did he do it? So it was interesting, when I started writing this book, one of my, I, ha- I had this idea that it was going to be a book about two years, which is 1932 and 33, and these are the years when the famine is at its height and actually as I started reading into the subject, I kept finding people referring back and referring back as you you, as you say, to 1917, 1918, 1919. Um, and I realized that, of course, everybody who was in power at that time remembered very well the events that had taken place in Ukraine um, 20 years earlier. And in 19, at the time of the Russian Revolution, there was also a revolution in Ukraine. It was a kind of liberal national revolution, or that's what it wanted to be. Um, it sought to create a, a Ukrainian state. Um, It very quickly broke down, uh, and Ukraine dissolved into a kind of chaotic, um, it was actually probably the bloodiest part of the whole civil war. You had the Bolsheviks, the Red Armies, the White Armies, the Poles, and at a certain point in 1918 and 19, there was an enormous peasant revolt, uh, uh, mostly directed against the Bolsheviks, Um, and this this chaos in Ukraine was something that um, Stalin, who had been the Commissar in charge of Ukraine in, the, in 1918. Isn't
0: there a contradiction there? Weren't the peasants looking for reforms, for land reforms?
1: They wanted land reforms, but they didn't want the Bolsheviks. They didn't want people coming from, because the, the, the Bolsheviks came in, you know, brought in their commissars, um, arrested people, and took people's grain. I mean the Bolsheviks were the Bolsheviks were from the very beginning interested in Ukrainian grain and in taking it to feed the you know the, the starving people in Leningrad and Moscow. Um, And so the the Ukrainians did want a kind of revolution, but they didn't want the one that was being given to them. And this was actually, this point, it's important because this is exactly what Stalin was most afraid of, was a kind of, you know, a a real counter-revolution that was based on, you know, a peasant rebellion, which would be dangerous. And actually the one that took place in 1918, 1919 was very dangerous and did almost nearly lead to the fall of the Bolsheviks in Moscow. And so they had this idea that you know chaos in Ukraine and peasants' rebellion in Ukraine, and also Ukrainian nationalism in particular, the Ukrainian national movement, were you know absolutely dangerous, even could be lethal to the to, to their revolution. Um, and so, in, in a way, what happened is that Stalin, um, the famine was part of a broader Soviet famine. So in in the stalin had begun to collectivize agriculture in 1929 and 30. there was chaos in the countryside there was a lot of food shortages and things were going very badly and it's almost as if stalin at a certain point in the autumn of 1932 decides to instead of alleviating these problems and you know slowing down on the collection of food and so on accelerates them and particularly in ukraine and it's and it's from his notes and letters it's clear that he had this an idea that he could kind of use a moment of chaos to get rid of a problem, and this was the problem of Ukraine. So the problem of Ukraine not wanting to be part of the Soviet Union, the problem of Ukrainians not liking to be ruled from Moscow, the problem of Ukrainians wanting some kind of independence or sovereignty, You know, and he could sort of get rid of it. And it's not an accident that the famine takes place in 32 and 33. And then in 33 and 34, there's also, in addition to that, a kind of massive crackdown on Ukrainian intellectuals, artists, writers, poets, even the Ukrainian Communist Party. Um, and so there, there's these sort of two things that happen at the same time, and they're carried out by the same secret policeman. What was the role
0: of the Ukrainian Communist Party during the famine? It's
1: very ambiguous, actually. The, in, in, in the in, As people begin to go hungry in 1932, a number of leading Ukrainian communists start writing letters to Stalin asking him, you know, for relief, you know, please bring us relief, stop collecting food here, stop exporting food, Uh, people are dying here, and they begin sending him letters describing what's happening, Um, and then he pushes back very hard and, you know, insists on and pushes through his policy. Um, One or two of them, one particularly famous, one committed suicide when they saw what was happening. Um, Quite a few of them didn't live through the end of the decade, Um, very soon after the, you know, after the, after the famine ends, you then, the next wave of terror in the Soviet Union is 37 and 38. There's this great terror when they arrest many leading communists. And really, I think with one exception, everybody who was in the Politburo in the famine era is either dead or in prison um, by, you know, by 1940. So they did protest, they did complain. Eventually, they buckled down and you know and caved in, but Stalin didn't forget the fact that they protested and they didn't. Most of them didn't last very long.
0: One of the most interesting things in your book is the debate on whether or not this was uh, genocide, and it's interesting that several countries have recognised the Ukrainian famine as genocide, uh, including the United States, Canada, Australia. Not Ireland, interestingly enough, but that, that may come. Um, the whole question of the definition of genocide is a very interesting one. and As, as you know, it, it has its roots in the, uh, the, the conclusion by the famous Polish lawyer, um, Raphael uh, Lemkin. Lemkin, Lemkin, <coughs> uh, who defined uh, uh, the, the crimes of Nazi Germany as genocide. And it became uh, written into the United Nations that genocide mm-hmm. was uh, denial of a right of existence of entire human groups. Uh, how do you come to the conclusion that it was genocide, that it was imposed by uh, a, a power that wanted to eliminate a group of humans?
1: So it's a very, the story of Raphael Lemkin, which again is described in the book, this is a, he's a Polish Jewish lawyer who comes from Western Ukraine, it was actually part of Poland in the 1930s, it's part of Ukraine now, um, the city of Lviv. And he, um, it's sort of not an accident, I think, that someone from that part of the world would come up with this idea, because he lives in a region um, that was always at the cusp of different empires, and people were always trying to impose their cultures upon one another. And his original definition of genocide um, made it clear that what he was talking about was an attempt to eradicate a nation as a nation. So it's not just it's not just physical destruction it means destruction of the language of the culture of the architecture of the arts you know the an attempt to replace one culture with another culture this This is what the word genocide means
0: so the word genocide would apply to what the russians did to the chechens when they deported the people and then destroyed all yes all aspects yeah absolutely the gravestones the graveyards yeah how do you how
1: do you eradicate a people and make sure that they cease to exist um and under the, and, and that is Lemkin's own original definition. And under that definition, he himself said later um, uh, that there's no question that Stalin's policy towards Ukraine in the 1930s was a genocidal policy. It was designed to eliminate Ukraine as a, as a nation. It is true that as the, as the concept got written into international law and by the UN, um, it is true that the understanding of what it was became very closely linked to the German Holocaust. And which was something a little different, which was an attempt to kill every single Jew. I mean, it was a eradicate them by physical elimination of everybody. Um, and this has made the argument about the Ukrainian genocide more complicated because no the, the famine was not an attempt to kill every single Ukrainian. Um, there were actually Ukrainians who were perpetrators, who were part of the who were who were part of these activist teams that carried it out, and obviously not every Ukrainian died. Um, so, you know, so by that definition, it, it, it becomes more difficult. But this broader definition, which is the one that, um, you know, was, you know, that was the original idea of the term and that was the and it is increasingly, I think that's how the, the statute is interpreted. Um, I think you, there's no question that it applies to Ukraine. I mean, in that, as I say, it was an artificial famine. It was an organized famine. It was not an accident. It was not an act of God. It was not um, the, you know, it was not the weather. Uh, it, was, it was orchestrated in order to eliminate, you know, to, 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 um, to eliminate what Stalin perceived as the threat of Ukrainian nationalism.
0: As a journalist I'm very interested in how the, the famine was reported and everybody who uh, reads a book on foreign correspondence comes across the story of Delante who was the New York Times correspondent in Moscow at the time the famine happened and he won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting of the Soviet Union, but he didn't get the famine. In fact, he, well, more than he, that, he yeah. attacked other journalists who were reporting, or one of the journalists in particular, a young Welshman, who did report the famine. Now, how has the famine been reported in, in, uh, in the media and in, in, in written books as well? I'm thinking of the book by Robert Conquest, written while the Soviet Union still existed, which I think was the first time that mm-hmm. uh, people in the West realized that something terrible had happened.
1: So the story of Walter Durante is really fascinating, um, and it's worth parsing a little bit. Walter Durante was, he was actually British, but he worked for the New York Times. And at the time, he was one of the world's most famous journalists. He was the the Moscow correspondent for the New York Times. He was um, a great figure in New York. Um, There was a, Roosevelt sought his advice when he wanted to know about what was going on in the Soviet Union. He had a great following. and his attitude towards the Soviet Union was kind of I'm not a communist, but I can see that some good things are being done here. And he had a sort of he had a, he had a sort of neutral attitude, which actually Stalin found very useful. Um, so there were a lot of communists in Moscow who were, are you know who were you know approving obviously of the revolution, but Durant, he said, you know actually had a, a position that was more useful. So he he was given several important interviews by Stalin. He was he was a you know a favored figure in, in Moscow and so on. Um, a lot of his reporting, and actually the thing he won the Pulitzer Prize for, was about collectivization. And this, was the, this is the forcing everybody to move from their private farms into collective farms. And this was the, um, this was the original cause of chaos in the countryside and the, the beginnings of the famine were to do with collectivization. Um, and I, my theory about him is, is that he was very reluctant to admit that his reporting was wrong you know that it hadn't been this great success that actually it was a disaster
0: a common feeling so feeling
1: we can is, all yeah. we can empathize right yeah. um, and he and and he was very sensitive about this point um, he, what the, the other journalist you're referring to is a completely different figure this is a man named Gareth Jones who was in his 20s at the time was a very young freelance journalist who came to moscow in the spring of 1933 um, went around Moscow, met people, and then convinced the Soviet government to let him take a train to Kharkiv, which was then the capital of Ukraine. Without a minder. Sorry? Without a minder. He did not have a minder. and he, You know, he, there was a whole, he was a secretary, of, had been the secretary of Lloyd George, and the Soviets thought he was somebody important, and so they gave him this privilege, and they let him, anyway, he took this train from Moscow to Kharkiv, and he got off the train, you know, halfway there, and he started walking down the tracks. Um, And this was in March, 1933, at absolutely the height of the famine as people were beginning to die because the the laws that had increased the amount of grain procurement had been passed in the autumn and the, uh, the sort of measures that had been, that started the famine in Ukraine were in place. And by March, people were beginning to die. And he walks down the train tracks and he sees the famine kind of at its height. He takes lots and lots of notes, which by the way, have been preserved. His notebooks were kept. Um, by his sister, and then found um, a few years ago by his grandnephew, I think it was. Um, and he um, and he, you know, he sees it. He he writes it. He makes it to Kharkiv. Um, a few days later, he leaves the Soviet Union, and he actually ha- left and he went to Berlin, where he held a press conference and he gave a big speech. And he said, "There's a terrible famine happening in the Soviet Union. Um, it's a catastrophe." He wrote several articles about it, um, mostly uh, in kind of second-level newspapers. I mean, he's a freelancer, not a famous correspondent like Duranty. And Durante read what he wrote and saw what he wrote. And then not only did he deny the famine, he kind of, in a very patronizing way, denounced Gareth Jones. So he wrote an article with a famous headline, um, Russians are hungry but not starving. Um, and you know this young man, Mr. Jones, he's very terribly enthusiastic and it's very nice that he's learned Russian and you know, he's very energetic, but you know, he's only seeing a small part of the picture and actually the Soviet Union is a great success. Um, and this, this effectively neutered Gareth Jones's story. I mean, at that point in history, Walter Durante was the famous journalist. Gareth Jones was a stringer nobody heard of. Um, and, the, and sort of Walter Durante's version of the story won. And so people often ask me, "Well, why didn't anybody do anything? Why didn't the United States do anything?" Well, you know, that's one of the reasons is because the journalist who who was most trusted and most believed um, was wrong. Um, um, you know, there it was a it was a difficult moment. World historically, 1933 is also the year Hitler came to power. Um, you can hear there was a there was a conversations both inside the Vatican and inside the British Foreign Office that we know about where some people said well there seems to be something bad going on in the Soviet Union maybe we should talk about it and others said well you know we're going to need Stalin's support down the line Um, bad things are happening in Germany and so didn't Malcolm Muggeridge
0: write something Malcolm Muggeridge I was going to say there there
1: were two or three other people who wrote about the famine Muggeridge wrote a piece that was published anonymously in the Guardian Um, but as, as I seem to remember his piece actually came I don't remember now which event it was in Germany but it was published at the same time as one of the, um, you know, some crisis of, of 1933, and it sort of went under the wire. It wasn't noticed um, to the degree that it could. So other events seemed more important, and the main, you know, and remember that mo- none of the journalists in Moscow were allowed to write about famine. You know, they, they all knew about it, um, but they were. It was, you they'd know, just, they'd they'd they
0: would to be thrown out. They would be thrown
1: out. They would lose their jobs. They would be chucked out of Moscow. This was an absolutely forbidden subject, and everybody knew that. Um, and so some of them wrote about it later, when, after they left Moscow, and as Muggeridge wrote about it. I think he sent his stories by diplomatic pouch, and they were printed anonymously. In The Guardian. In The Guardian. Yeah. Um, but but, you know, but it, it, is, it is a moment when you know, there, there was a limited amount of information, and those who were controlling the information weren't really interested in publicizing the famine. I'd like to
0: ask you about your own sources of information. Um, I must say I was a bit disappointed reading your book. I'd read about 310 pages. I was deeply engrossed in it and I turned over. There were 100 pages left and I discovered that 100 pages were made up of uh, references and notes and uh, <laughs> authentication. I hope you so, didn't read that. So. Oh, every page. <laughs> so um, I'd like to ask you, uh, how, do you, how, do you um, how do you get your information to describe the famine in such detail, in such engrossing and vivid detail, uh, what 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 archives are open to you now?
1: So, with this book, which is different from some of the books I've written already, um, one of the things I discovered was that an enormous amount of archival research had been already been done. Um, the Ukrainian government, and actually even during the when there was this, the pro-Russian president Yanukovych was running the country, even then. Quite a lot of money had been invested in organizing the archives, searching the archives for material about the famine. And there's a lot written in Ukrainian um, already on, on the subject. Um, but I had access to, I mean, and the Ukrainian archives, I should also say, are uniquely open and easy to use. And really? I've, I've confirmed this with others who've, who've worked there and worked elsewhere. I mean, you know, when you work in the Stasi archives in Germany, I mean, you practically have to fill out a job application and give all kinds of information about who you are. And you know, they look you up and down and probably you know, do a police check on you. When you work in the Ukrainian archives, you can—I mean—you can literally walk in, show them your driver's license, and you know, please order whatever you want. It's a very easy system to work in, and lots of people are there using them. I think people who used to work in Moscow and Moscow has now become much more difficult now work in Ukraine. So I had um, really three kinds of sources: I had archival sources, um, both material that I could read in the archives, and also material that had already been collected and compiled by other Ukrainian historians. I had a lot of help from Ukrainian historians who who I'm really grateful to and they're frequently cited in the book. Um, And I I relied on them a lot. Um, I also had, there was enormous um, collections of oral history, um, most of which I didn't do myself because by the time I started writing my book, people who were actually alive at the time of the famine were either extremely old, I mean in their 90s, um, or dead. However, in, in several earlier periods, and you mentioned a minute ago Robert Conquest, and we didn't talk about him, this was an American historian who wrote a book on the famine before the archives were open in the 80s, and one of the things that he used was a big archive of uh, sort of oral history archive that was taken, that his mostly from the diaspora, so Ukrainians who'd left Ukraine for whatever reason, Um, and could be interviewed. So he had first-hand had So these were first-hand accounts. um, But then there was another set of oral histories done um, in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, And in addition to that, there's a big memoir. um, You know, there there are collections of memoirs and so on. and And a lot of this has been collected by the Ukrainian government or by Ukrainian state institutions over the last 20 years. So that whenever I'm describing the famine in the book, I'm using the language of people who were there at the time. So I'm quoting from people who say, this is what it looked like. Um, you know, I, I know that memory is faulty and you, know, you can't count on memoirs for names and dates. And for that, I do try to use archives. But for what did it feel like? You know, what are the, what things stood out? What were the relationships between people like? Then I'm always try to use the um, language of, of, of ordinary people who remember it. Uh, going back to something you said about Stalin or the Kremlin
0: being afraid of uh, of the Ukrainian peasantry, I think thinking history repeats itself in that. I think today you might agree that the Kremlin is afraid of Ukrainian history repeating itself in Moscow. I'm thinking of the Orange Revolution. Uh, so my question to you would be: uh, How does the famine play into the contemporary? Uh, um, Arguments between Ukraine and Russia.
1: It's, it's very interesting. Those are two parts to that. And the, you know, the Ukraine actually, um, Ukraine is a country where because it's, you know, because of its history, you often have more than one set of historical memories. So they're particularly about the war. You know about. Um, You know, there's a kind of Soviet version of history that some people have and a more nationalist version of history that others have one of the things that does unite Ukrainians both east and west, Russian speaking Ukrainian speaking, is the the story of the famine and so the famine has because it affected everybody Um, and so the famine does have a, you know, quite a lot of significance for Ukrainians as a you know, I think, I mean you can tell me whether this is the same here in in Ireland for for the famine in Ireland, but as a kind of event that, you know, that we all remember and that delineates us and that we experienced as a nation. And so it has a lot of significance. And for exactly that reason, for the same reason, um, Russians have first the Soviet government and then more recently the Russian government have fr- sought, you know, repeatedly to undermine the idea that there was any Ukrainian famine at all. And this has taken different forms, either complete denial. There was no famine. Nobody was hunger hungry. Um, there's a more subtle version, which is yes, there was a famine, but it wasn't that it wasn't any worse in Ukraine, um, you know. And there's different versions of, of the, you know, and, and the to the extent that you know, you can see how contested it is because in Donetsk, in the city in eastern Ukraine, um, that's now occupied by pro-Russian forces there was a f- memorial to the famine that has been taken down and defaced. In other words, it's seen, a famine memorial is seen as a kind of national symbol, important enough for, you know, for, for pro-Russians to, to destroy. So some people in the
0: Kremlin, the, the famine is fake news. Have you been getting any pushback from those sources to what you've been writing?
1: So I, I didn't, I mean, I have to say, I didn't get any pushback from the book when it was published in English Um, I thought there might be because I've had, you know, Kremlin trolling directed at me before for other reasons. Um, But they they didn't, it's been left alone. It's just been published in Ukrainian and I, um, there may be some attempt to discredit the book there going on, but but so far not.
0: I'm sure what you uh, have been talking about has stimulated lots of questions in the audience. Uh, So I think maybe I will turn over to um, people in the audience. Could I ask, uh, I'll take questions in groups of three, and could I ask you please to be brief? And uh, I'll try this side of the hall and then this side of the hall, so I'll try to be fair to everybody. So. And it's like the KGB
1: is shining lights in our eyes, so I can't, (laughs) I can't see. Well, I
0: I can see a young lady here with her hand up. Uh, Perhaps you could give her the microphone. Just here in the front row. Um, Thank you very much for this. This was very
1: interesting. And I just have a short question. Um, So you talked about Ukrainians living in Poland. And could you maybe talk a bit about Ukrainian attitudes to the Polish state before the war, and maybe if that has changed during the times? And would Ukrainians prefer the Soviet Union or the Polish state?
0: Sorry, I didn't hear that. Another question from this side yes sir the man with his hand up there sorry could i could just ask you how did it end did the soviets like take their foot off the neck of the ukrainians or did they just like it's yeah. a good how question did it end? Yeah. and one other question from this side this person in yeah. yellow so i just wanted to ask a question about the recognition of the ukrainian famine so as uh, as you uh, as uh, we heard today that uh, few countries already recognize it, including Western democracies like US, Canada, and Australia. Like, there's a whole lot of countries in the Eastern Bloc that recognize it as a genocide. However, like, a lot of civilized world still kind of very, very much silent about this. So uh, question to you is, uh, what do you think can and must be done to uh, uh, get a wider recognition of this question? Thank you.
1: Sure. Um, So I'll take the last one first, Um, you know, I I, I can't go country by country and tell you why people haven't accepted it. Um, uh, You know, for a long time this was a really important piece of Ukrainian public diplomacy. They sought to, you know, they lobbied countries to get them to recognize the famine as a genocide. Um, I think more recently the Ukrainian government has sort of bigger problems um, and they have other you know, because of the Russian invasion and their own reforms and so on it's kind of it's become a secondary issue and it, maybe they're not pushing it as hard as they used to be um, it may just be a matter of time and a matter of um, expanding the definition of what we mean by genocide and you know returning to the original definition which I think would include the famine and you know perhaps over time as more people write about it and, and so on th- um, that will change um, The relation oh how did the famine end is actually it's a really interesting question i mean in essence what happened was the grain harvest of 1933 came in it was collected um, partly with the help of outsiders people were sent from the cities in ukraine to go and bring in the harvest because and there are some extraordinary descriptions of people you know students being sent to the countryside Without understanding where they were going, and then they arrive in villages, and they realize everybody's dead, and that that's why they're there to to bring in the crops. But in essence, the harvest came in in '33, and um, the collection stopped. You know, so they simply stopped. You know, they stopped taking people's food away. And once they stopped taking people's food away, there was more food because the harvest came in, and the famine came to an end because it was artificially begun. It artificially ended as well. And I assume the reason, you know, we assume the reason why it ended was. That the, you know, the 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 desired effect had been achieved. In other words, the um, the, the, the 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 one of the things I should have um, pointed out was that one of the effects of collectivization was to to um, to spark a number of revolts in Ukraine. So in 1930-31, you actually had armed revolts. People took you know went into their barns essentially and got the guns that they'd stored there during the you know during the civil war and started shooting communist commissars. And the famine really put an end to that mood of revolt, and it was the end of any resistance to collectivization. So, you know, it achieved the effect that it wanted, which is to um, kind of eliminate, you know, the, the, most, um, the most difficult part of the Ukrainian population to pacify people and to force them into, the, into collective farms. Um, so that was, I mean, it simply ended because people were allowed to eat again. That's the, that's the, main, that's the main answer. Um, The conversation about Ukraine and Poland is almost as complicated as the one about Ukraine and Russia. Um, Ukraine and Poland also share, were part of joint empires in the the more distant past. Um, They could, in theory, have a border conflict because the western city of Lviv, which is a Ukrainian city now, was a Polish city in the 1930s and it had a long history of being attached to Poland. Um, for, For most of the last couple of decades polish Ukrainian relations have actually been excellent um, Poland was I think the first country to recognize it, Ukrainian independence um, Poland was the country that led the drive to have to create a European um, trade relationship with Ukraine um, so there's a there's a history of Pol- Poland and Ukraine working together much more recently um, now that we have a more um, um, a more nationalist government in Poland there's been some Um, it's been, it's been less, it's been less good. I mean, there's without going into too great detail. I mean, as we all know, we're, we're all now familiar with the phenomenon of Russian trolling operations and how they work and how they seek in every country to find, you know, areas of disagreement that can be emphasized. And one of the ones they run is, is one designed to create antagonism between Poland and Ukraine. And unfortunately, sometimes it works.
0: OK, I'll take three more questions. I did promise a question to this person here. In, uh...
1: Hi, um, as the grandchild of Ukrainian Jewish refugees of the famine, I know that, of course, in this time, Jewish communities were obviously targeted. But was there, within the famine, an extra targeting of Jewish communities, or was it just every Ukrainian?
0: Thank you. And I uh, take a question from this person here. Uh, how much worse did the colloquization make the Holodomor, or would it have even happened in the first place without the policies of the I understand that. And the question from this gentleman, with a Beard. Would collectivization have taken place if Stalin had been ousted by his colleagues, say in 1923 or so, or was collectivization an integral part of the Bolshevik economic doctrine? Um,
1: so collectivization was actually, it was Stalin's signature policy. It was, and he fought for it, and he argued for it, and there, was a, there were others inside the Communist Party who were against it. I mean, it's a long story, but that's, that's the essence of it. Um, and actually, one of my guesses about collectivization, which is that as it, um, as it began to go badly wrong, as people, as it created chaos and hunger and so on, um, one of the other reasons why Stalin decided to use this moment of chaos to, you know, to crack down um, was to, you know, it was, it, was part of, it was part of the terror that he was using to dominate the Soviet Communist Party. And people, It was a real ruthlessness. You know, look, you know, he was going to make this work even if it wasn't working. He was going to keep following the policy um, even if it was creating damage. So it was actually part of his... You know, part of his um, consolidation of power was collectivization and then the use of terror around it. And then of course the next big wave of terror followed a couple of years later. So um, so no, it was not a ne- I don't think it was not a necessary part of Bolshevik policy. It was a decision that, that he took. Um, I didn't hear the middle question. Maybe you heard it. Know. Could the middle question question or repeat the <laughs> I question, couldn't please? Hear it. I didn't hear it either. It was something about the echo in the room. Um,
0: sorry. Switch uh, on. Uh, what if the the um, Holodomor happened without dekulakization? kulakization
1: uh, would it have happened with Out. without? Without the Yeah. So these are actually slightly. Se- de-kulakization is a really hideous word. Um, it's a translation of a Russian word um, that means essentially that they arrested and deported all the wealthy farmers. Because another one of their, you know, this was all a form of class warfare and, you know, the idea was that the, 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 the poor should take over the, over the farming system and the, the rich peasants who were supposedly stopping the progress of the countryside should be deported. And this happens in 1930-31 and then the famine is actually a couple of years after that. And so I think the famine is actually a slightly separate um, you know, it's, it's connected in the sense that de or the deportation of people was helped create the atmosphere of fear and terror that made the famine possible. But I don't think they're necessarily directly related. Um, then the first question was about Jews and the, and the famine. And this is actually, this is the one piece of this story that I don't know the full answer to. Um, and it, partly because the records weren't kept in such a way that you can tell who's Jewish and who's not Jewish. I mean, there's some... Anecdotally, um, Jews were often not peasant farmers. I mean, in fact, they usually weren't peasant farmers. They were usually tailors, or you know, for for the historical reasons that you know, they were usually had had professions, and so they were not. They wouldn't have been direct victims of the famine in the same way. Of course, if you lived in a region that was starving, and the peasants were starving, then you know the tailors and the butchers and the bakers also starved. So I'm sure there were many um, victims. There are some anecdotal stories of. Jewish families who had access to rationing, helping their Ukrainian neighbors, and so on. And then I'm sure you can probably find um, the reverse as well. But there, the, the, the victims weren't tallied in that way. But my, my guess is that the, the Jewish victims, the numbers would have been less, simply because the Jews weren't peasants. And that, I mean, they were, sorry, they were, pe- they were peasants. They weren't farmers.
0: Um, I'll take two more questions from this side, and one from this side to balance up uh, my earlier promise. Um, here. Should I speak? Yeah. Um, Thank hello. For, sorry. sorry. That's That's Thank you for your presentation. You mentioned earlier about the tensions between Poland and Ukraine. I understand there is now tensions between Hungary and Ukraine. Perhaps you could just elaborate a little bit on that, please. Thank you. And one more question from this side. Uh, this man here with his hand up. I think a lot of people were aware of the
1: proposition that Ukraine was the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. Was that centred around this time in 1931-32, or did that proposition continue into the 60s, 70s, 80s? And, in, in other words, did the grain from the Ukraine continue to supply the Soviet Union afterwards, or did the grain feed the Ukrainian population only?
0: Good question. And one more from this side. Um, Hello. Um, I'm a PhD student and, and my thesis is on Ireland's and Moor and Ukraine's Holodomore. Um, I would like to ask you a question. Um, in your opinion, should Lemkin's original um, uh, definition of uh, genocide should probably be revisited and reviewed, especially in light of Russian um, renewed aggression? Thank you.
1: Thanks. Good question. Um, so, uh, you know, if we wanted to talk about all of the um, ethnic conflicts that the Russians are trying to provoke all across Europe, we would be here for the rest of the afternoon. So I will be very limited in my discussion of Ukraine and Hungary. Um, there is a small Hungarian-speaking minority in Ukraine. Um, and the, the in the last couple of years, there has been Um, an argument over their status and Viktor Orban who is the prime minister of Hungary has sought to you know promote the idea that these are really Hungarians he's been giving them passports Um, uh, and this is a you know trying to undermine their loyalty to the Ukrainian state the Ukrainian state on the other hand has sought to ensure that not all of them speak Ukrainian so has sought to insist that they have Ukrainian in school um, and there is a very small kind of storm in a teacup between the two countries ongoing right now. Um, you know, my guess is it's, it's, an, it's another symptom of our times. Um, you know, we now have, you know, now that you've had a Russian occupation of Eastern Ukraine, you know, maybe there are others who think they could at least spark antagonists between other countries. You know, Ukraine is a big country. It has a number of ethnic minorities, Polish, um, Hungarian, um even I think Romanian um, and the idea one of the, um, the idea that you could um, pick apart Ukraine has been a Russian idea for a long time, and I'm sure that's playing into this as well. Um, the other questions were um, oh, the bread basket again. yes, um, Ukraine is um, you know you well I mean it's it's a complicated story because actually Soviet agriculture was never terribly efficient and I mean, Ukraine had been the breadbasket of czarist Russia. I mean, it was, the, um, it was the grain producer. It was famous in the 19th century for producing food. And then prior to that, Ukraine was, the lands which are now Ukraine were very important to the Polish Commonwealth, um, which was also an exporter of grain. So this is a region that's been agriculturally significant in Europe for many centuries. Um, Soviet agriculture was, not fantastically well organized even in the years after when after collectivization and the soviet union had to import grain um, even then Um, somebody told me recently and i don't know whether it's true but that ukraine is beginning to be once again um, a really important exporter and a center of grain production in europe so it may just it may have been a temporary moment when it was when it was less significant certainly the moscow always thought of ukraine as Absolutely crucial to its existence because of its, um, uh, because of its, you know, because of its agricultural importance, and particularly in the 1930s and 40s when there were, when there were food shortages. And the question about uh, genocide. Oh, um, should we, should we, should we review the question of genocide? Um, I mean, I, I think yes, it's worth bringing up again. It's worth looking again at the UN Convention and how it's written. Um, uh, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot going on in the world right now, and this isn't a great moment for international institutions. Um, we don't have a U.S. president who's keen on them or interested in them, so um, it's not a fantastic time to be to have that discussion. It would have been better to do it 10 or 20 years ago. Um, but yes, I agree that it, 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 it's worth looking again. One of the things I explained in my book is how. The UN Convention on Genocide was actually the product of a negotiation that included the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union was very anxious that, um, you know, that, that mass murder for political reasons not be part of the convention or not be, you know, the, and that the law around the convention not include that. I wonder why. Exactly. <laughs> um, and that was, this is, you know, the convention was written in the 1940s. I mean, it may be time to revisit, I agree with you.
0: Um, I think we've time for maybe two or three more questions. Uh, one from this side, this person with a hand up. And this gentleman here with, with his hand up over there. And this lady over here. Sorry.
1: So maybe two more. Um, hi. Um, have you come across any similarity between um, the Ukraine famine and the one that took place in India and, under the British war, uh, during World War II, and, and the similarities for, like I don't know, like the, like the man-made created famine that also happened there?
0: Thank you. I wonder if you'd like to speak about but, uh, Vladimir Putin and his colleagues lately trying to rehabilitate Uh, Stalin, he kind of talks about the excessive demonization. He mentions Russia and the Soviet Union, but it's obvious that he's talking about uh, Stalin and and, and the cult of the strong leader, Uh, with reference maybe to the the denigration of Memorial, which is the oldest Soviet uh, human rights grouping who have found these mass graves from the Gulag era between Lake Onega and uh, the Finnish border. And finally, this lady, whom I've been ignoring.
1: <laughs> it's, it's the KGB lights, you know. Can't see her. Thank you so much for your book. You dedicated this book to the victims. How many of them? You said four millions. I think more, because nobody counted. So the question of how many victims there are is very controversial. Um, I used in my book the only figures that are based on actual archival research, and the research is not um, based on the death rates, which were not recorded, and it was not based on the Soviet statistics, which were manipulated. It was based on what we know about you know um, how many people were born and dying throughout the period. In other words, the, it was put together by demographers. Actually, there was a team of Ukrainian demographers. There were about twenty of them. They've been working in the archives for a decade on this and other projects. Um, and there, you know, there have been lots of other numbers that have been used and thrown around, but none of them have any archival or you know factual basis. If somebody comes up with better ones I will change that section of the book but so far they haven't and so um, I'm sticking with their numbers which is um, 3.9 or approximately 4 million between 1932 and 34 which is already a a large number of people to die from a famine very many people so it's not a um, I don't think it denigrates the you know I I, I can't use a number that doesn't have any any other basis except that somebody once said it Putin and Stalin is an interesting question. So, And, and the, uh, the whole relationship that modern Russia now has to that era is very complicated. Putin, you know, as you know, in the 1980s, there was a big discussion of the crimes of Stalin and Stalinism in Russia. When you were there, that, must, that was happening. Um, and in the wake of that discussion, we then had the 1990s, which were a time that many Russians remember as very chaotic and disastrous. And you now have almost in Russia a feeling like well, we had that conversation, and it didn't get us anywhere. You know, it, was a fail, it, seems, it feels like a failure or something like that. Um, and, and while the subject is not illegal or taboo in Russia, I mean, you're allowed to talk about that era. It's not forbidden or anything like that. It's very much downplayed. Um, and when Stalin is talked about, he's talked about the moment that Putin has chosen almost to celebrate um, in Russian, 20th century Russian history is the moment of victory in the war. So there's an annual now a big parade in Red Square, where, which looks like the kinds of parades that used to take place 30 years ago with people wearing Soviet uniforms and waving Soviet-era flags. Um, and they've, he, Putin has chosen this moment of victory and triumph when, um, when Moscow controlled half of Europe and had defeated the Germans as the piece of Stalinism that he would like to, mem- you know, to commemorate and celebrate. Um, the camps, the gulag, you know, the famines, um, you know the, the terror, is, it's, not, it's not forbidden, but it's not part of the mainstream conversation right now. So it's not so much that Putin is rehabilitating Stalin, the dictator and Stalin, the bloody you know, author of terror, he, but he's trying to rehabilitate another a kind of Stalin, the, the victor in the war and the conqueror of Europe. Um, and that's the piece of Stalin or Stalinism that he's trying to remember and resurrect. Um, and it's part of a, it's you know, it's a kind of nostalgic and backwards-looking um, idea that you know we're going to resurrect this moment of greatness, and that's going to make us all proud again and keep us united and so on. Um, and so it's very, it's a very instrumental use of Soviet history, um, and it has the unfortunate effect of undermining the efforts of so many people. You mentioned Memorial. This is a wonderful Russian. It's an interesting organization because it does both human rights advocacy and history. Mm-hmm. Like they they write history books, publish history books, um, and one of the memorial's idea was that if we if we can adequately understand the history of terror, then we'll make sure that we never repeat it. Um, and and certainly their efforts have been undermined and um, and and you know you, you know aren't taken seriously. An interesting point on that when I was researching my book on the last day of the Soviet Union. I traveled
0: to Moscow to find, to see what literature had emerged, what academic studies had been done on Gorbachev and Yeltsin. because They were t- two main protagonists of my book. And I discovered very little. And I asked a bookseller in the old Arbat, why are there no books on Gorbachev and Yeltsin? And he said, because nobody wants to read them. It's a time of shame in our country, and we yeah. don't want to even think about it anymore. I'm sorry, did you answer the third question?
1: What was the third question? Um,
0: Indian, yeah. Oh the, oh, the
1: Bengal famine. That's, so I, again, I had the same um, rea- answer, that's a little bit the same as what I said about the Irish famine. I don't know enough about it. I don't know enough about the mechanics of that famine and how it was organized. Um, I had o- always thought, and I will, I'm happy to be corrected if I'm wrong, that that's a famine that happened again more. It was a little bit more like the Irish famine, in that it was neglect plus export of grain, and the need that you know they needed the grain for the war effort or something, you know, and that it wasn't an attempt to. Murder people in Bengal and to to suppress um, Bengali nationalism, but I I'm not a I'm not really qualified to make the comparison. I haven't looked at it closely. But
0: I think, in fairness, Juan, we should start to bring these proceedings to a close. I think we maybe take two more questions, one from each side. Uh, the person at the back there with a the hand up.
1: Lascova Prossima and. Just a a question. You you mentioned that uh, the the famine uh, in western Ukraine under Poland, there obviously was no famine. But what was the case east of Ukraine, say in Rostov and Stavropol, the Volga Don area in southern Russia? Was was there a famine going on there at the time?
0: And one question from this side. Um, This man over here. I'd just like to ask, um, in relation to Bandera and the OUN movement during World War II, how did they use the famine and the purges to mobilise that whole agenda they had of wiping out Jews and Poles? And did you come across any information on that during your book research? Um, uh,
1: So the the you know the famine was one of several things that the. Ukrainian national movement used to motivate people um, and you know I don't want to be overly general about the OUN because it had different parts and they different bits of it were in charge at different times and it was a very you know it was a very chaotic period and there were anti-semites in the movement and then there were people who weren't anti-semites and so I don't want to be overly general um, you can hear in Ukraine um, not so much now, but you certainly could hear in Ukraine the argument that, you know, the the famine was carried out by the Bolsheviks and the Jews, and that this is, you know, that we need to take revenge against them. Um, You don't hear that among serious Ukrainian historians. You can still find it on far right parts of the Ukrainian internet if you want to look for it there. But no, I mean, the famine was one of, um, you you know, the Ukrainians had um, genuine grievances against um, the Soviet Union, and it was one of the, you know, it was one of the, Things that would have unified people, um, uh, unified people against them. And I'm sorry, I've now forgotten again. The, se- the first question it was. It was. It was
0: about the other regions of Ukraine. Oh, it's Russia. Just, sorry, the, uh, in Russia, southern Russia. Russia, Russia okay. What I was
1: going on? I need a pen. Okay. In so, so yes. Yeah, so there was a, as I said, you know, if you think of, um, you know, you, there's a general category of crimes of Hitler. Okay, and then within the category of crimes of Hitler, there is the Holocaust, which is a specific crime with specific Um, you can think about the history of the Soviet famines in the same way. There were famines all across the Soviet Union, including in Russia. They were they were better and worse in some places. A lot of Ukrainian historians have observed they were particularly bad in um, the, the regions of Russia just next to Ukraine, which were at that time Ukrainian speaking, although they aren't so much anymore. Um, and so there, there, there was famine in other parts of Russia, there was quite a bad famine in Kazakhstan. Um, the Ukrainian famine was one of the, you know, took place within this general category, and it had some of its own dynamics and some of its own sources, and some, you know, it happened in, in a specific way for specific reasons. And we know that death rates were higher in Ukraine because of decisions that were taken that were aimed only at Ukraine. But yes, there was um, the collectivization caused starvation and food shortages um, and famine all across the Soviet Union, including in Russia.
0: Okay, could I ask for a show of hands? Everybody who has bought Anne Applebaum's book, could you please raise their hands? Good, good. Okay, so those <laughs> who haven't raised your hands, you know what to do. <laughs> and I promise you it is, a, it is a riveting, engrossing, revelatory word. Thank uh, you. Which I recommend. I couldn't recommend it. Thank you.
1: Um,
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. If you'd like to subscribe, you'll find all the information you need at dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and we're also on Twitter at histfest.